the greatest mission field is your heart. That's what a friend of mine told me. His name's AJ Gibson. I was living with him for a couple months, uh, him and his family in Mexico. He's um, a missionary there and has a deep desire to bring the good news of Jesus to those in the remote parts of Southern Mexico. And as I was picking his brain about missions and ministry, discussing the challenges of various mission fields around the world, he made that statement, the greatest mission field is your heart. And it was a great and recalibrating reminder to me. As Christians, as those called to reach our neighbors and the nations, as those called to minister to our kids uh, and to our community, we must never forget that the mission field we must always be giving the greatest attention to and fighting the greatest battle over is our own hearts. And Psalm 130 helps us to navigate that mission field. The psalmist, we'll see, uh, writes out of his own personal struggle with sin. And in so doing, he lays out four steps along the path of repentance toward experiencing the deliverance of God. So let me read Psalm 130 again. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait on the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So this first step along this path of repentance that the psalmist lays out in the first two verses is humbling himself before God. He describes his situation in verse 1 as being in the depths. He's painting a picture of a person in water, a person drowning, someone in over their head, maybe gasping and struggling to keep their head above water. This is how he envisions, this is how he pictures his battle against his own sin. His sin is like a deep, raging ocean that he's swimming in and from which he doesn't have the strength to make it to shore. That's how he understands his battle against sin, and the reality is that's true for all of us. But we, perhaps in our pride, can refuse to acknowledge the severity or the pervasiveness of our own sin. And so if we were in this image, if we were in this scene, we might, instead of doing what he does, calling out to God, we might try to swim harder or hold our breath longer, hoping that we'll overcome our sin and make it too short. But the psalmist acknowledges himself to be too weak, to be lacking the strength that is needed to get his head above water. And so he does what a drowning person, someone who knows that if, if someone doesn't come to the rescue quickly, they will soon go down. He does what that person would do. He calls out for help. So he says in verse 1, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And notice when he does it. 
He says, out of the depths, I cry to you. It's when he's in the midst, of, in the midst of his struggle, at his weakest point, when the waves are crashing in over him, that's when he cries out. He doesn't cry out preemptively in the theoretical case that he might encounter waves and strong currents. And he doesn't wait until he's reached the shore and no longer needs to be rescued. No, he cries out, out of the depths. And that takes great humility to do. To admit, not that I might have a temptation to sin in the future for which I may need God's help. Not that I sinned last night or last year and need God's forgiveness. But that right now, I am wrestling with a temptation to sin that I don't have the strength to overcome. So the writer shows us what it looks like to humble ourselves in that moment. We acknowledge our need for immediate help and rescue, and we cry out to God. This is something that all of us who are Christians have experienced. Think about it. This is how we came to know Christ in the first place. We understood ourselves to be utterly sinful and, in, and unable to change ourselves, powerless to change ourselves. And so, in a humble state of weakness, we called out to God to rescue us. And what we see in this psalm, in the example of this author, is that that is not only the way into a relationship with God, but that is the ongoing pattern of the Christian life. As we mature, we don't find ourselves needing to cry out less and less because we've become stronger, but in reality, we find ourselves needing to cry out for help more and more as we become more aware of God's holiness and as we become more aware of our own inability to change ourselves into what we ought to be. So the psalmist cries out to the Lord, but he cries out not only to be heard, but because he knows God to be a living and powerful God, he cries out for God to be attentive. He says, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my pleas for mercy. Sometimes we may be tempted to think of prayer as simply an exercise of getting things off of our chest and expressing them to God. We may pray and we may be convinced that God hears us, but we don't actually expect that God will do something in response to our prayers. But the psalmist here knows that he needs more than just an ear to listen to him. He is about to drown. He needs not only an ear to listen, but he needs God to be attentive to him, to attend to his needs. He needs God to show him mercy. In this imagery, he's drowning because of his sin, and he deserves to drown because of his sin which is why he asks God for mercy. He is asking God to keep him from experiencing what he deserves to experience, the, the death, the destruction, the drowning that his sin brings. In God's mysterious providence, this is one of the reasons that we as Christians continue to struggle against and wage war with our sin throughout our lives that God might grow humility in us, that we might feel our constant need of Him, that we might 
come to know him as our savior, as our rescuer more deeply and more personally and experience his mercy toward us. Which once experienced ultimately, ultimately leads us to trust in him more, which is the second thing that we see the psalmist do in verse three and four on his path of repentance. Verse three and four, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. <clears throat> in verse 3 there, he asks a rhetorical question, which, if considered deeply, leaves the reader with no other option but to put their whole trust in the character of God. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If God were to see and record every sin that every person ever committed, then who could escape his judgment? Iniquity or sin is the deviation or the departing from God's holy standard. It's the breaking of God's law. His law is an expression of his character. And for those made in his image as we are, it is the command for how we are to live. So I want you to consider with me the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. We know that in Scripture there are far more than Ten Commandments, but I want to consider together just the Ten Commandments. And as I read them, I want you to focus on the past seven days, 168 hours of your life. And I want you to consider that if God were to mark iniquities, or literally if God were to write your iniquities in a permanent marker, then what would your record book from this past week look like? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not hate. You shall not look upon someone with lust. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. The psalmist asks the question in verse 3 as a rhetorical one. But in reality, God does see our every sin. God does record each one of them as an affront to his holiness, as an act of rebellion against his rule over us. And God's sight pierces beyond our outward actions to the very motivations and intentions of our hearts and minds. Which is why when Jesus is speaking of the Ten Commandments, he equates uh, lust with adultery. He equates hatred with murder because God sees down to the intentions and motivations of our heart. If you are to live a long life, you will have hundreds of thousands of hours to account for before God. And if we're being honest in our assessment just of these Ten Commandments, I would guess that just the past 168 hours, the past week, are enough to convict us as lawbreakers before God. If God were to give you what you deserve based on your actions and thoughts this past week, could you stand justified before Him? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
None is righteous, no, not one. And therefore, should God mark iniquity, should God write iniquities down with a permanent marker, there is none who could stand justified before him. God has revealed himself to us through his word, through his creation, and, and in our consciences as being holy, as having a standard of righteousness to which we are accountable. And every single one of us has failed to live according to that standard. If that were the end of the psalm, it would be absolutely true and completely terrifying. God is holy and we are not. That is our greatest problem. But the psalm doesn't end there because God is not only holy, God is also gracious. He is not only a lion, he is also a lamb. He is both fierce and just and able to destroy us for our sin and gentle and loving and willing to forgive us for our sin. So the psalmist says, but with you, there is forgiveness. The same God who is holy and just, the same one who can rightly condemn us for our sin and allow us to perish in it, is the same God who chooses to forgive us of our sin and grant us life. Uh, one author reflecting on these uh, seemingly contradictory attributes in God calls them an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. He says this, there is in God a conjunction of such truly diverse excellencies as otherwise would have seemed to us utterly incompatible in the same subject. That these two things, these seemingly opposite things, can reside in one being seems to us utterly incompatible. But it is in grasping the conjunction, the coming together of these diverse excellencies, that we find reason to fear God. His strength and His gentleness. His holiness and His graciousness. His fierce anger over sin and His constant readiness to forgive sin. These diverse qualities in one being are reason to fear God. Pop quiz question. Does anybody know how far the sun is from the earth? You get bonus points if you do. No? <laughs> the universal sign of idiocy. <laughs> Would you say, uh, JP? 200,000 light years. 200,000 light years. So the sun is 93 million miles away from Earth. And though it's so far, because it gives off such heat from 93 million miles away, it causes our apple trees to grow in the spring. It gives us light so that we can see where we're going. It produces vitamin D in our bodies, which is conducive to health. But none of us would be able to withstand its heat if it were a little bit closer. When we are in proper relationship as a planet to the sun, it provides for us, it is good for us, it is good to us. But if our relationship to the sun were out of proportion, it would destroy us. God is like that. 
If we are in a right relationship with him, then all things he does work together for our good. But if we are not, then nothing we can do can withstand his hand of judgment when he extends it. That reality ought to evoke in us a healthy fear of God. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Does anyone know who said that? Jesus. Jesus said that. A full view of God ought to simultaneously bring the greatest and deepest sense of comfort and safety and the most sobering fear. The health of our Christian lives is bound up in holding both of these things at all times. That God is holy and hates sin, and God is gracious and forgives sin. And being that we have all sinned, we have no remedy for our sin, but to put our whole trust in the gracious nature of God, to wipe our record clean, to not mark iniquities when we come to him humbly, confessing our sin and asking for forgiveness. And that's what the psalmist has done in this first section, having humbled himself before God, crying out for help and mercy, having trusted in the revelation of God's character as both holy and gracious, the psalmist then, thirdly, waits on God in verse 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. The psalmist knows that the rescue he needs from sin is beyond his ability to produce. And so he waits upon the Lord. But when we use that word wait, we generally use it in a very passive way. Like uh, I was at the doctor's office in the waiting room, waiting until he called me in. And what we're saying is I was doing nothing until the doctor came and called me in to go to this office. So we use it very passively. But this word here doesn't describe a passive person. The word, the original word, carries the idea of gathering or binding things together that are supposed to be united. And it's here describing someone who binds or gathers themselves to God. His waiting involves assessing his own state, identifying where he has diverged, where he has become separated from God. And to do that, he looks to the word of God. He says, in his word, I hope. He addresses the areas in his life in which he has gone astray from God. But that itself will not be the deliverance that he needs. But it will put him in the position to experience the deliverance of God. And likewise, for you and I, as we wrestle against our sin, this psalm instructs us not to be passive and simply stand by while we wait for God to swoop in and wave a magic wand that will just make us holy. But instead, we are to study God's word, learn of him, behold his character, his power, his grace, his holiness, see his purpose and his intention of redemption unfold throughout the pages of scripture. See what he's doing throughout history and where this story ultimately leads for his people. You begin to see him more clearly as you do this. You see him more and more as the infinite treasure that he is. And you see him as more valuable and more satisfying than any of the fleeting pleasures of sin. And as you do this, 
hope begins to build and the reality sets in that like Paul said to the Philippians he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion you become convinced of your identity as his child and you learn of his power that he has given to you by his spirit to live obediently and it's by that power that you gain victory over the sins that beset you and keep you from running the race unencumbered. As you study God's word, meditate on it, pray it, speak it, the Lord begins to convince you that as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow, he will come to your side at just the right time and help you to live for his glory. That is our sure confidence. And that is the confidence of the psalmist. He says there at the end of verse 6, More than the watchmen wait for the morning, so my soul waits for the Lord. If you've ever worked an overnight shift, uh, then you know how much you look forward to the rising of the sun. Because that means that you will soon get to go home. Your shift will be over. You wait with desire, but not just desire, you wait with expectancy because there is no doubt in your mind that before long, the sun will rise and your shift will be over. And likewise, we who hope in the Lord and in his word can be confident that he will surely supply our every need as we wait upon him and as we hope in his word. All of us in this room who know the Lord can attest to ways in which we've seen him deliver us from strongholds of sins in our past. It causes us to rejoice. It causes us to be grateful and to speak highly of his power and his grace that has set us free and has given us the true joy that the fleeting pleasures of sin are a poor substitute for. And it also causes us to want to glorify God, to call others to trust in Him so that they too may experience the deliverance that we've experienced. And that is what the psalmist does in these last two verses of the psalm. He, he glorifies God in verse 7 and 8. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. In these last couple of verses, he turns outward and he calls the people of God to hope in the Lord. And he does so for two reasons. First, God's love is steadfast. Like we saw in Psalm 100 the last time we were together, and like we just read at the beginning of our service in Isaiah 54, this truth of God's steadfast love is a pillar to all of God's people throughout the generations. It is his unfailing covenant love that creates the environment in which we can fight against our sin and trust him to help us in that fight. It is because his love is steadfast that we are not crushed under the weight of condemnation when we are in the pit of darkness. When we are, as the psalmist says in verse 1, swimming in the depths of our sin and we have no reason that God should love us in that moment. It's because of his steadfast love that we can stand up and fight in that moment. If you are in Christ today, there is no condemnation for you. 
zero condemnation from God towards those he loves in Christ. His love toward you is unfailing. He knows every sin you are struggling with. He knows every temptation that you have given into, and his love for you has not withdrawn one single inch. And so the psalmist calls the people of God to hope in him because of that. And secondly, calls them to hope in the Lord because the Lord loves to redeem. And with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. When God redeems or rescues a person from sin, it is not a begrudging errand that he goes on when he would rather be doing something else. He loves to, re to show his redeeming power to his people. And he will never run out of this redeeming power. If you fall 10,000 times, God's power to rescue or redeem you in that moment is no less than when you fell for the first time. And therefore, the psalmist can confidently say to a group of people, some of whom have sinned more than others, some of whom have sinned in more wicked ways than others, he can look at a whole group of people with all those diverse factors and say to all of them, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. That's what this psalm says to us this morning. No matter how many times you have sinned, no matter how many ways you have sinned, God will redeem you as you humbly look to Him for rescue. Whether it's gossip or bitterness, envy, lust, worldliness, unbelief, pride, irrational fear, lying, any sin that you are struggling with, this psalm would say to us, Humble yourself before God. Cry out to Him for rescue. Trust in what the Bible says about His holiness and His graciousness. Believe what the Bible says about you as one who is in Christ. Wait on Him with confidence. Hope in His Word. Never stop doing this. And God will surely come to your rescue and be attentive to your pleas for mercy. Let's pray together. Lord, once again, we are reminded of your steadfast love. We are reminded, Lord, that in your love, you made a way for us to be reconciled to you. That though you are holy, though you are the giver of the, the law to which we could not measure up, you are also the giver of the law keeper, your son Jesus, who obeyed on our behalf and grants us his own righteousness that we might know forgiveness. And so, Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for the perfect righteousness that is ours in him. And I pray that for each of us in this room, we would have a greater sense of that forgiveness, have a greater sense of your power to not only wipe our record clean, to not only remove the, the iniquities that have stained us, but to also make us righteous in practice, that we might live holy lives. We need your help. We acknowledge before you, Lord, that we are weak, that we struggle against sin, and we don't want to sin. We want to honor you. We want to live for you. We want to bring glory to your name. 
And so we ask for your help as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.